Hey everyone, I'm Walt, one of the High Rock pastors. I've shared a little bit about this in the past, but as some of you know, I grew up Roman Catholic in Baltimore, which is a very Irish Catholic town. Nowadays, I have a deep appreciation and gratitude for my Catholic upbringing, and I find a lot of richness in its tradition and teaching, but my experience growing up in the Catholic Church felt complicated. I heard a lot of emphasis placed on the transcendence of Christ. Jesus was big and and cosmic and inaccessible to an awkward teen like me. I didn't know how to relate to him. He just felt so far beyond my understanding and ability. I remember feeling very little and insignificant in a spiritual sense. Like I was on this tiny boat in the middle of a huge ocean of spirituality and holiness and, and history. I wanted to connect to God. But God felt far. So where to turn? Because Jesus felt so distant, we are often encouraged to turn to the person who is closest to Jesus in his life, his mother, Mary. Mary is everywhere in Baltimore. There are statues and icons left and right. I went to a Catholic boys' school, and our sister school was named Notre Dame Prep. We were occasionally attended a church called the Immaculate Conception, referring to the Catholic doctrine that Mary was herself conceived without sin, in order that she could be a proper host for Jesus. Prayers to Mary were a part of our church and school liturgies, even a part of our pregame sports chants. You would be surprised what gets a 15-year-old boy fired up before a game. And Mary was the name of my beloved grandmother, who always busted my chops later in life for not being as Catholic as she would have hoped. There's just something about Mary. Now, there's plenty that could be said, and has been said, about all of these doctrines and dynamics, but I will say that as a teenager trying to figure out faith, when I was encouraged to look to Mary as someone who would be more relatable, more down to earth, well, that felt like a pretty big ask. In some ways, she even felt more out of reach than Jesus did, which meant that once again, I felt like I had to figure out faith on my own. It was hard to know Jesus. It was hard to know Mary, but I did know myself, and I knew I was blowing it. I knew I was out there making mistakes left and right, doing things that God would not approve of. It was clear I was supposed to have faith and live right. What was way less clear to me was how to actually do that. And I ended up feeling a lot of shame and anxiety around my failures. I wanted to connect with God. I wanted to to bring goodness into the world, but so often I felt like I was just contributing more fear or anger or scarcity. I was trying my best to keep that little boat above water, but I felt like I was sinking. Eventually, I came into more evangelical waters, and it became pretty apparent right out of the gates that their take on Mary was different. These evangelical friends, though well-meaning, were highly critical of my Catholic upbringing and very ready to tell me what was wrong about a whole host of things, including her. At times, I felt like their perspective on Mary bordered on disdain. They were eager to highlight the parts of her story where she wasn't at her best, like when she and her other sons came to stop Jesus from living in these radical countercultural ways or to diminish her faithfulness down to, you know, she was just along for the ride, didn't really have much uh, say in it at all. Well, my Catholic community seemed to overemphasize Mary, my evangelical community underemphasized her. And perhaps ironically, despite their insistence on prominent Protestant doctrines like faith alone and grace alone, their lives didn't look all that different from mine. There were parts of their spiritual lives that I really admired, but I also saw the ways that, like me, they weren't always bringing goodness into the world. They too wrestled with shame. They too were quick to anger and cast judgment. They too were eager to draw boundary lines around who is in and who is out. They might have believed differently than me, 
but we still found ourselves in the same struggles. Struggles that perhaps you have experienced as well. We're continuing in our Beyond Belief sermon series, where we're exploring the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest professions of faith in the Christian church. Our hope is that it will help us understand more clearly the God whom we follow, or perhaps the God whom we're considering following. But we want to be careful. It's true that incorrect beliefs about God are a problem. But inactive beliefs are a problem too. Even if a certain belief is correct on paper, if it's not transforming our our life and relationship with Jesus and the world around us, then do we really believe it? We want to move beyond belief, beyond just checking boxes on a doctrinal checklist and into real, full life with God and others. And today we're getting into one of the trickier spots in the creed. The belief that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Up until this point, you may have been tracking right along. God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, his only son. For many, when it comes to Christian beliefs, this feels like fairly standard fare. But now the creed is really asking something of us. That Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born to a virgin, Mary. Do we believe this? Do we have to believe this? As Pastor Dave shared in the first sermon in our series, there is so much that the creed doesn't cover. There's no mention of scripture, or baptism, or atonement. It yada 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 is over the entire life and ministry of Jesus. There's almost nothing about the Christian life, nothing on prayer, or justice, or money, things that the Bible says a lot about. So, why does the virgin birth make the final cut? feels a little random, a little disconnected, maybe even a little troubling. Like, what's going on here that God is impregnating a woman? This seems more like a a scene out of Greek mythology. How necessary even is this for our faith and life? These are good questions. One many have wondered about. Questions I've heard from high rockers right here. If we just took out the virgin birth, what difference would it really make? I'm glad we can ask honest questions like this. Because if we are really asking from a spirit of curiosity and humility, questions like this are key to helping us move beyond belief, beyond rote acknowledgement of a theological claim. We have to ask why these things matter. And my hope today is that as we consider these lines with the creed, we'll see in, in a new way, something fresh about who Jesus is, who Mary is, and who we are as well. Now, This part of the creed introduces us to Mary, but also another major player in the Christian faith, the Holy Spirit. Along with God the Father and God the Son, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, which is the term the church has used to capture the relational reality of God, one God, yet three distinct persons. The creed doesn't use the word Trinity, but it is written with a Trinitarian formula. The writers of the creed organized it into three sections that begin with, I believe in God the Father, in Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. Each section elaborates on aspects of the work of that particular person of the Trinity. But as we can already see, it's not just this easy cut and dry thing. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working together in creation, in the incarnation, in the redemption of humanity, and in so many other ways. So already, even though it's not the Holy Spirit's turn just yet, The creed is acknowledging the work of the Holy Spirit 
in the birth of Jesus. We'll definitely be coming back to the Holy Spirit later in our series, but we have to spend some time talking about who the Holy Spirit is uh, in order to fully understand the significance of this part of the creed. One of the main things the Holy Spirit does throughout the biblical story is to bring life to places that had no life, to places that could not even support life. At the very beginning of the creation story, we see the Holy Spirit hovering above the waters while the earth was formless and empty. Later, when God is creating man, God breathes into the dirt and man comes alive. Literally, God puts God's spirit into the dirt, bringing life where there was not. Much later, when God's people had forgotten God and forgotten who they were, God said they were like dry, dead bones, but that God would make breath, the spirit, enter them and bring them back to life. The Holy Spirit brings life where there isn't life. There wasn't life in that unformed earth or in the dirt God had molded or in the dry bones. And in those years when I was still figuring out who God was and who I was, there wasn't life in me either. I wanted to find life. But despite all of my striving and straining, I found myself back at the same place of fear, guilt, and shame. I wanted to be different. I wanted to be able to enjoy life and bring life into the world. But I was learning the hard way that I couldn't do it on my own. And this is why I think this line of the creed is so crucial for us. I haven't met anyone who said, "Mm, I'm not really interested in being a good person. We all want to be good, to, to have life for ourselves, for our loved ones, even for those beyond our immediate circles. But if we're honest, we all know how hard that can be. We all know how discouraging it can be to try and be better, to try and improve ourselves and prove ourselves or justify ourselves all the time. And when we find ourselves right back where we started, it can be so hard and painful. But the creed offers us a different way forward beyond just our own efforts. When the creed was being formulated, there were huge debates in the church about who Jesus was. What kind of person are we talking about here? In one corner, you had those who were arguing that Jesus was a divine being in a human skin suit. There was nothing human about him because God would never do such a a lowly thing as become a, a real person. It was all just a disguise. In the other corner, it was the opposite view. Jesus was a really good guy, maybe so good that God had given him a a special anointing or call on his life, but he was still only human, just like the rest of us. I don't like either of those views. The Jesus in a human suit image was what I wrestled with as a teenager, totally unrelatable, detached, inaccessible. It felt like God was just slumming, and it was on me to figure out things on my own. God wasn't really coming near to us. And Jesus, as the greatest guy ever, was even more discouraging. Here's a guy who did manage to be perfect, so what's my excuse? Neither of these options felt like good news to me. But the conviction of the writers of the creed was that Jesus wasn't either of those things. He wasn't just a divine being out there cosplaying or LARPing, and he wasn't the best person ever. He was fully human and fully divine conceived by the Holy Spirit and born from the Virgin Mary. So what does that mean for us? Honestly, it means a whole lot. What I love about this line of the creed is that it tells me that God didn't just appoint a really good guy to save the world, 
but that God himself was willing to roll up his sleeves and get in the mess. God was personally going to come and save us. And God was going to do that by taking on flesh, becoming human in Jesus. God didn't think humanity was too lowly to get involved with, which tells us there is a a goodness and holiness that is natural to humanity, that is intrinsic to being human. Human nature has been corrupted by evil, but that evil does not have the power to destroy what God has made and called good. Creation is valued by God, and God was going to redeem it by entering into it and making all things new. A friend of mine once told me how he became a kidney donor for a family member whose kidneys were failing. The family member's kidneys weren't able to properly clean their blood, so they were just getting sicker and sicker. They looked terrible. Their skin was all yellow from the toxins that had been building up. And if they didn't get a healthy kidney soon, they were going to die. So this friend gave them one of his healthy kidneys. Thankfully, he had an extra to spare. And within hours of receiving this new kidney, they looked and felt completely different. Instead of death literally coursing through their veins, now they were filled with life-giving blood. They had been cleansed, healed, and made new. This is a, a really helpful image when we're trying to make sense of God becoming human. It's like every human being out there has failing kidneys. It doesn't matter how much kale we eat or how much yoga we do. We need a healthy kidney. There aren't any to be found. Everyone is sick. So what does God do? God comes to make a new kidney. The scripture tells us the problem isn't with our kidneys, but with our heart. It's poisoned by sin. So like that unhealthy kidney, try as we might, it pumps out deceit, selfishness, greed, and more. But in Jesus, God comes to make a new heart, which Jesus offers to anyone who wants it. A heart that loves God, loves others, and brings life into the world. And God accomplishes all of this by coming to a young woman, Mary. I've been eager to get into Mary's story because I find it both beautiful and incredibly challenging. The story opens with Gabriel, an angel of the Lord, visiting Mary in her home. Right away, this is striking. Typically, Royalty summons people to come to them. You get uh, an invite to to the palace or the castle or wherever. So I'm told, I've never been invited to visit with a king. Maybe my invite just got lost in the mail. And this typical dynamic plays out earlier, where God informs Zechariah of his wife Elizabeth's unlikely conception during a once a year audience in the holiest part of the temple, which was seen as a throne room for God. But in our story today, God comes to Mary, an incredible sign of honor. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And as often the case, when someone encounters an angel, Mary's afraid. She wonders, what's going on? What kind of greeting this might be? But the angel reassures her that she has found favor with God. And that favor will take the form of giving birth to the Savior, that God's people had been waiting for for generations, Jesus. Now, if we're familiar with the virgin birth narrative, then it seems obvious to us what's coming next. The Holy Spirit is going to impregnate Mary. But that wouldn't have been the case for Mary. She's engaged to Joseph, and they're planning to be married soon. 
Conceiving a child in the traditional manner would be a safe assumption in their near future. But in this moment, Mary hesitates. This is not an ordinary child. Perhaps it will not be an ordinary conception. So she asks, how can this be, since I am still a virgin? As I mentioned earlier, some have asked questions about Mary's agency and consent. Should we be concerned by any notion of coercion here? Theologian Amy Peeler notes a, a pattern in this conversation. Mary asks, and Gabriel answers. Here, he says, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. God is explaining, not coercing. And God waits to enact this word until Mary accepts it, which she does. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel leaves. I'm struck by the, the honest and remarkable faith of this young woman. She's a, afraid and confused, but instead of turning away, she asks questions. She, she stays in the conversation because she knows who God is. The God who highly favors her and who has favored her people for centuries. The God who is good, faithful, and keeps his promises. This is a God who can be trusted, who is worth having faith in. The traditional Catholic teaching is that Mary conceived through her ear. It might sound a little odd to you, but it actually makes a lot of sense to me. We see this pattern throughout scripture where people hear the word, receive it with faith. The word grows inside of them and brings life into the world. It's the image of the good soil in Jesus' parable of the sower. And it is exactly what happens with Mary. She hears God's word and receives it with faith. Then the Holy Spirit creates life within her and she literally brings that life, Christ, into the world. She's an amazing model for us in this regard. I want to have a faith like Mary's. So what is it that we are bringing into the world? Do you find yourself just contributing more anxiety, more fear, more scarcity, more division, more death? When I misunderstood who Jesus was and misunderstood who Mary was, I misunderstood who I was. I felt spiritually detached and discouraged. I wasn't bringing life into the world. But as I understand more clearly who Jesus is and who Mary is and who I am, as someone loved and made new by Jesus, my life started to look different. As I released that old way of faith where all my goodness was entirely up to me and my efforts, I embraced a new way. And as I joined with others who encouraged me to receive God's life-giving word, as I've opened my hands instead of grasping and grabbing, I both received and brought more life into the world. So now when I'm afraid, or ashamed, or alone, or angry, or anything that makes me feel like God is not near, there are two things I can do, which I want to commend to you as well. The first is to remember. Remember that like Mary, you are favored. Jesus has come to free you from sin and shame and offers you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you have received that gift, there is new life inside of you. And God will bring this new life out in beautiful and amazing ways. Remember that. And the second is to recite Mary's words as a prayer. 
I am the Lord's servant. No doubt that Mary had her own dreams and plans that were very different from what God brought to her that day. But in that prayer, she entrusts her entire self to God, believing that God would lead her to life and blessing. So in moments when I feel disoriented and discouraged, reciting this prayer recenters me on who God is and who I am. And by being in that place, I am able to partner with God in bringing Christ into the world. I want to close with one more thought about Mary that has really stayed with me as I've reflected on our scripture today. Amy Peeler noted that for Mary to possess the honor of bearing the Messiah, she must be willing to walk through the shame of bearing a bastard. Now, I'm well aware this is not a polite word, not one for church in most circumstances. But I feel like it captures the scandal of Mary's yes to God. In this moment, faithfulness was not this nice, easy thing. It was embarrassing and costly and hard. Saying yes to God would mean being ridiculed by her friends and family, even coming under threat. It's an act of obedience that would be a model for her son, whose constant yes to God would one day bring him to the cross. Sometimes in bringing life into the world, we will experience death. So church, where can we follow Mary's example and say, I am the Lord's servant? Are we willing to look foolish just as she did, just as Jesus did? People might question the decisions we're making with our finances or our time or our sexuality or our careers. But in being the Lord's servant, Mary gave birth to the one who would be the servant of all and who died for her and for us and for the world so that there would be life instead of death. Some of us might look at this line of the creed and wonder, hey, do do I have to believe this? My response is, friends, we get to believe this. We get to believe the amazingly true story of God taking on flesh by being born of a woman, Jesus, fully God and fully human, coming into the world out of God's great love for us. That is the story that I want to be a part of and that I want our church to be a part of as well. A community that, like Mary, brings Christ into the world. I believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Amen.